Good morning. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to say happy Mother's Day to all of the, the ladies in our church. I know that even on a normal Mother's Day, this day can drum up all kinds of strong and diverse emotions. Um, for some people, this is a day of thanksgiving. For others, a day of longing. For some, this is a day of sadness. For others, a day of fondness and nostalgia. Maybe for you, it's some mixture of those feelings. Whatever your situation may be, I want us to be reminded this morning of something Jesus once said about his own mother. Uh, Jesus showed great honor to Mary. In fact, he even went so far as to make arrangements for her uh, while he was dying on the cross. He thought of her even then. But he also made it clear that the most consequential thing about a person is, is not their biological or family relationships. Listen to this exchange in Luke chapter 11. A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. If ever there was a mom blessed by virtue of motherhood, we would expect it to be Mary. But while Jesus honored his mother, he also made it clear that what brings eternal blessing is whether a person hears and obeys the word of God. Thankfully, that is a blessing that anyone can receive. You don't have to be a mom. You don't have to be a perfect mom. You don't have to have a perfect mom. Anyone can receive the blessing of hearing and keeping the Word of God. So let's pray that God would give us ears to hear and hearts to obey His Word as we hear it this morning. Let's read together in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pause there and let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would bless the hearing of your word. And I pray uh, that for those who are hearing it together this morning, that we would indeed be blessed, as Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Lord, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to respond rightly in trust and in obedience. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was uh, talking to a friend of mine this past week, a guy named Ron, 
and we were talking about the, uh, the different kinds of tools that people use in their jobs. Some people can do near wizard-like things with an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, mechanics use wrenches, Electrician, electricians use pliers, warehouse workers use forklifts, you get the gist. Of all the tools that God could have used, of all the tools that God could have created when He wanted to reveal Himself to us, He chose to use words. I just want us to think about that for a second this morning, that God chose to use words when He wanted to make Himself known to us. God presumably could have revealed Himself through electrical impulses or through telepathic feelings or through droning sound waves, but instead He chose to speak. He chose to use words. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. So here's one practical upshot of that truth for us. If we want to know God and love Him, then we should care deeply about the words He has spoken. As Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Now this means that we cannot listen half-heartedly. Uh, I know that we are all guilty of sometimes halfway listening to someone, and some of you are having darts shot at you across your living room right now. I apologize for that. But let's not give the Lord of heaven and earth half of our attention this morning. Uh, this passage that we're going to look at is dense, and it's going to, to take us giving it our full focus. We want to pay close attention to the words that God has spoken. Now, here's, what, here's how I want to summarize the big idea of this passage Try to boil it all down into one sentence. When we grasp God's mercy, we will strive to be holy. When we grasp God's mercy, we will strive to be holy. That's the bottom line that I came to after wrestling with the words of this passage. When we grasp God's mercy, we will strive to be holy. Now, before today, so far we've dealt with the first 12 verses of this letter. Peter opens this letter in the first 12 verses by announcing to us the greatness of God's mercy toward His children. If you look at verses 1 through 12, what you'll find is there are, there are no commands in verses 1 through 12, no imperatives. There is just information. And I want us to marvel at the beauty of a single word. Verse 13 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, because of God's great mercy toward us. Therefore, this is how we should live as His children. We would be doing ourselves a great disservice if we skipped too quickly over this word, therefore. Because what that word communicates to us is that God's grace comes before our obedience. He only gives us commands to obey after He has announced His mercies toward us. He does not say, do these things, then I will show you mercy. 
He gives His mercy freely as a gift. In the words of verse 3, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Not according to our obedience, not according to our righteousness, not according to our holiness, but according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. He does that freely. And only then, only after He has caused us to be born again according to His great mercy, only then does He call us and enable us to be holy. There is no works righteousness here. There is not a whiff of anyone earning God's mercy by their holiness. At the same time, however, if we think that God's mercy means that we can just live however we please, then we have not fully comprehended God's mercy. When we grasp God's mercy, we will strive to be holy. Now here's the thing. It's not like Peter tells us about God's mercy <clears throat> in the first 12 verses of this letter. And then the rest of the book is him giving us a list of things that we have to do. We're going to hear three commands, three imperatives in this passage today in verses 13 through 21. But each of those commands is wrapped inside a reminder of God's mercy that Peter's already told us about in verses 1 through 12. Uh, Rebecca and I once had to repaint the walls in our bathroom because our cat Buster uh, got sick and we had to give her some medicine. And we thought we were being smart. We tried putting the medicine inside one of those little cat treats that has a pocket inside it that you can hide medicine, hide pills in. Of course, Buster uh, could not be deceived. And before it was all said and done, we got the medicine in, in her, but there were also scuff marks all over the walls from our shoes. So I say that to say, don't be like Buster this morning. We're going to hear these commands, but they are wrapped inside this reminder of God's mercy. The first command is in verse 13. Look with me at verse 13 again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, depending on which English translation you're reading, it may be more or less clear. But in verse 13, there is only one command. There is only one imperative. And that command is, set your hope. Now, since we're paying such close attention to words today, I want to take us all back to middle school grammar class for a moment. And let's remind ourselves about the difference between an imperative and a participle, because this is going to help us understand the point that Peter is making here. An imperative is a command. You, you tell someone to do something. You give them a direction. In this case, the command in verse 13 is set your hope. That is the only verb in this sentence that has an imperative tense. A participle, on the other hand, is usually a verb that helps explain something else. I want to give you an example. I don't want to just kind of leave this in the abstract. I recently built a, uh, a small deck off of our 
back porch. And if you need help uh, building a deck, by the way, let me know. I would be happy to help you uh, find the phone number of someone else who can do it. But at one point, uh, while I was building, uh, I said to Nixon, hey bud, help me out by handing me that drill. Help me out by handing me that drill. Now, what command was I giving him? I was effectively telling him to hand me the drill, right? That, that's what I wanted him to do. But the way I phrased it, the imperative of the sentence is, help me. Not, not just hand me the drill for the sake of it, but I'm, I'm asking you to do me a favor. Help me out by handing me that drill. The participle explains how I wanted him to help me. It would not have done him much good or me much good if I just said, help me out, because he doesn't know what that means. He doesn't know what I want him to do, how I want him to help me. Help me by handing me the drill. Now, how does that help us understand verse 13? In this way, the imperative of verse 13 is set your hope. That's the command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there are two participles that explain how you do that, how you can set your hope. You can set your hope on God's grace by preparing your mind for action and by being sober-minded. Preparing your mind for action and by being sober-minded. Now back in verse 3, Peter described our hope as a living hope. And now we see that this living hope is also a thinking hope. The way that we set our hope on God's grace is by thinking rightly. What we do is ultimately shaped by what we think and what we believe. When we grasp God's mercy, we will strive to be holy. Now you might say, wait a minute, even though I believe the right things, I sometimes still do the wrong things. And that's certainly true of all of us. Filling your mind with the right truths does not automatically produce holiness because we don't always live in step with what we profess to believe. But the point is that we cannot expect to grow in holiness apart from truth. You can know a lot of truth and not be holy, but you cannot expect to grow in holiness without knowing truth. Setting your hope on the grace of God means that you are preparing your mind for action and that you are being sober-minded. Now, what does that mean practically? It'd be easy to say that and then kind of go away and say, okay, but what does that actually mean? How do I do that? I want to give you an example. Glance back with me at uh, verse 6. This is a verse that we looked at last Sunday. Verse 6, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So he's just finished talking about all of the mercy that God has shown to us and causing us to be born again and in granting an inheritance to us. And then Peter says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What I want you to notice there is how two things can be true at the same time. You can be grieved by various trials and you can rejoice in the greatness of God's mercy toward you. Being sober-minded means that you hold both of those things in tension. 
Some people fixate on the trials that grieve them. They, they focus on them to the point that they're miserable and they constantly complain. That's not being sober-minded. Other people do the opposite. They project a false sense of joy. They just try to sort of ignore the grief that the trials are causing them. Hear me, that also is not being sober-minded because it's not living in reality. If we're going to set our hope on the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus appears, it means that we need to think soberly and realistically about both, about the trials that grieve us and about God's mercy that causes us to rejoice. So one way we could say it is that being sober-minded does not mean that any time there's a trial that causes me some grief that I just say, no, 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 I, I can't be sad. I have to replace that thought or feeling of sadness with a thought or feeling of happiness. That's not what being sober-minded means. Being sober-minded means not that I replace one with the other, but that I balance one with the other, that I balance the reality of the hardship I'm experiencing with the weight of the joy that I can have because of the grace and mercy that have been shown to me and that God has pledged to me in the future. That no matter what my circumstances are right now, no matter how painful they are, no matter how grieving they are, that God has caused me to be born again and that He has pledged an inheritance to me. And so when I look in the past, I see God's grace. When I look in the future, I see God's grace. When I look in the present, I see God's grace. And so, yes, I'm grieved, but I also can rejoice because of who God is for me and what He has done for me. What ought to be clear to all of us is that our minds are constantly a battlefield, and we must take every thought captive to obey Christ Jesus. Now let's move on to the second command here. Look with me at verse 14. Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then verse 16 goes on to say, Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now again, the only imperative in verses 14 through 16, is be holy. Be holy in all your conduct. That's the only word in that whole sentence there that is in the imperative tense. But Peter wraps that command inside a reminder of God's mercy. Every word here is carefully chosen. He's not just saying be holy, but notice what he says. Look at the very first phrase in verse 14. As obedient children. As obedient children. Now children are people who, they, they are inside a household, they're in a family, and because of that they have both privileges and responsibilities by virtue of being children. As children of God we have the privilege of new life, of forgiveness, of reconciliation with God. We have the privilege of calling on the Lord of heaven and earth as our Father in heaven. We have the privilege of a future inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. We also have responsibilities as children of God to reflect the character of our Father in heaven, to be holy as He is holy. So this means that we are not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Again, notice the reminder there 
of what God has saved us out of. If you are in Christ, you are not yet what you will be, but by God's grace, you're no longer what you once were. God has called you out of your former way of life. Peter says there in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The one who called you from death to life is holy. The one who gave you a new name, the one who clothed you in the righteousness of his son, the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, he is holy. So Peter does not only say, be holy in all your conduct. He wraps that command inside a reminder that God has called us out of our lostness into his family, out of death into life, out of darkness into light. The command to be holy in all your conduct is not a way of saying, here's how you can earn a place in God's family. It's a way of saying, this is what it means to live in God's family. Your father is holy. He's your father by grace and he is holy. So if you are his child, then you should strive for holiness because you want to be like your father. When we grasp God's mercy, we will strive to be holy. The third command is, is similar to the second. Look with me down at verse 17. Peter says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We have a great privilege to call on God as our Father. Some people take that a little bit too loosely. Peter reminds us here that the one we call on as Father is also the one who judges impartially. And because of that reason, Peter says, we are to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. When the Bible talks about fearing the Lord, it does not mean being afraid of Him the way a slave would be afraid of a vindictive, unpredictable, unjust master. It means that we honor the Lord, we revere Him as a child would revere a father who is perfectly loving and perfectly holy. It means that we want to please Him. And it also means that we know that nothing will escape his sight. He will judge impartially. But notice the first word of verse 18. So the, the command, this third command is to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then verse 18 goes on to say, knowing. The, the way to conduct yourselves with fear is by knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Whatever sinful legacies have been passed down to you from your parents or grandparents or ancestors, God has redeemed you from those. And He has purchased you, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And this plan to redeem you was not something God did on the spur of the moment. Verse 20, He, that is Jesus, the spotless Lamb, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead 
and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God's mercy stretches back before the foundation of the world. Before time existed, before space existed, there was God's mercy planning. God's mercy was pictured and promised throughout the Old Testament. Every time a priest stood in the tabernacle or temple and offered a sacrifice, it was a shadow of what God would do one day when He ransomed His people with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God. The mercy that was planned and promised and pictured was made visible in Jesus who lived sinlessly and died in our place and whom God raised from the dead. And don't miss this. God made His mercy visible in Jesus for our sake, for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God. Peter does not tell us this so that we will go about our lives living however we please. He tells us, so that we will live to please the one who gave his son to purchase us from sin. When we grasp God's mercy, we will strive to be holy. Lots of people have this idea that the Christian life is about pursuing experiences. Sometimes it's, it's big experiences and sometimes it's the week-to-week -week experience of gathering with the church. The song builds up just right and makes me feel a certain way. The preacher gets fired up and has some awesome closing story that makes me weep or fills me with joy or determination. There's nothing inherently wrong with those things. But if you really want to grow in holiness, if you want to live to please the one who has called you, it is not about pursuing experiences. It's about growing to know the Lord more and more. And that should then spill over into our conduct, our words, our attitudes. I sometimes hear people say that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And what I think a lot of people end up meaning by that is that Christianity is, is not a body of truth that we're to believe or to hold to, but it's just an experience we're to pursue. No, a relationship means that we have to know the other person, that we have to care enough to listen to them and know that they care enough to listen to us. And so if you want to grow in your relationship with the Lord, it's not about pursuing an experience. It's not about trying to get Him to make you feel a certain way. It's about listening to what He says so that you can know Him. And it's about speaking to Him, sharing your heart with Him. And this is not something that happens once. It's not like I wake up one day and suddenly I get it, then I never struggle with sin again. I have to remind myself over and over. I have to wrestle to grasp God's mercy every day. Because some days, if we're honest with ourselves, we're tempted to think that we're so righteous we don't need His mercy. We would never say that, but we act that way. Other days... We're tempted to think that we're so sinful we don't deserve His mercy. But then we're reminded that while we are more sinful than we could possibly imagine, we are more loved than we could possibly hope. So the Christian life is about daily reminding ourselves of the things we know to be true. 
I want you to know that I'm praying for you that God would help you not to be forgetful of His mercies. Some who are listening to my voice today are already children of God. And you need to be reminded of your need to grasp God's mercy day after day so that you will strive to be like Him. Others have not yet become children of God. The Bible says that those who are not in Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins, which means there is nothing you can do to remedy your situation. God has to make you alive in Christ. I'm praying that God would use His Word by His Spirit to make you alive, that He would awaken you to the goodness of His mercy, that He would give you eyes to see all that He has done for you. He has promised that if you come to Him, He will not turn you away. That if you put your trust in Him, you will not be put to shame. So you can trust Him. You can listen to Him. He is worthy. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for the abundance of Your mercy. And I pray that You would help us to apply that mercy rightly to our lives that we would not take it as a license to live however we please, but that we would allow your mercy to drive us to desire to please the one who has offered us forgiveness and pardon, the one who has called us into his family, the one who has given us a new name and clothed us in the righteousness of his son. Lord, open our eyes to see what you've done for us. And God, that it would change our perspective on you and on the world and our, on ourselves. God, I pray that our daily pursuit to know your mercy would lead to a daily pursuit to model your holiness in the world for the sake of your church, for the sake of your kingdom, here and to the ends of the earth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to leave you with a word of blessing this morning. May the Father who gave His Son for you and who has called you into His family by His Spirit enable you to grasp His mercy and empower you to pursue His holiness. Amen.